Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. If you're a fund manager, investor, or financial advisor driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community, and we would love the opportunity to connect with you in person. One way to do that is to join us in Dallas, September 23rd and the 24th, at the National Faith Driven Investor Conference at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. We'll be recording live episodes and joined by friends like Andy Crouch, Finney Corvilla, and the leaders of this movement. Go to our website to register. While you're there, please send us any thoughts that you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you have about being a faith-driven investor. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Hosts and guests may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Every company on the planet has an impact somehow. It has an impact on its employees, on its customers. It has an impact on the environment. What if we made sure that that impact was both positive and we were intentional about what we want to see change? So impact investing isn't doing anything different than what's being done with charity and charitable capital. It's not different in form, but it's different in the way that we think about what we want to have happen with it while it's generating a profit. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. Today, we're going to hop over to Kansas City to connect with Amy Minnick. Amy is one of the co-founders of the Impact Foundation. Previously, she was the president of the largest affiliate of the National Christian Foundation. She's also no stranger to the podcast. She's a regular contributor and a co-host when we have guests in the area of impact investing. But today, we're going to turn the microphones around and get a chance to hear more of her own story and some of the things that she's seeing in the area of impact investing. Let's listen in on our conversation. This is a special edition of the podcast. Amy Minnick has been a friend of ours for a long time in the faith-driven investing movement. She was around at the very, very beginning when four or five of us got together at a Sovereign's Capital Annual meeting, actually even before that, to say, gosh, what does it look like for us to be more involved in developing an industry? And really, it makes it sound like there's no industry that already exists. There is. We've talked to people like John Silverland have talked about some of the work that's been done in mutual funds. But what does it look like to bring together a bunch of people that might dream about what might happen as Christ followers get out and try to understand how God might use them and their assets and stewarding them for his glory. What does it look like when we go ahead and see a fully stocked store of real estate funds and exchange traded funds and public debt and public equities and private debt and private equities, all of these things that might have some spiritual integration in them. And Amy's been a thought leader in the space. She has hung up a shingle to help people to be more thoughtful about the way that they participate in financial markets for God's glory. Amy is going to be somebody we hope to have back several different times as she helps us to unpack some of the world of impact investing. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that we want to kind of go right into that space. We want to endeavor to understand this kind of messy middle. You've probably heard us talk about that Mark Andreessen quote that Warren Buffett also uses at times, which is, you know, I'll buy a house or I'll buy a boat, but I won't buy a houseboat. And in acknowledging the fact that if you're just investing just for return and how to maximize financial return, well, there's some managers and you can see scorecards on that. If you're looking for philanthropy, well, there's a different set of metrics. But when you combine the two, it gets a little murky, it gets a little difficult. And yet it's a place that I think that we as Christ followers need to wade in. 
it may not be impact investing, which is something that Amy is an expert on. It may not be the place where we put all of our investments, but it's something that I would submit that every Christ follower should understand and know about. What is impact investing? Impact can mean so many different things to so many different people. Amy is going to help us in this podcast episode and then several we hope to follow as we interview other people in the space to understand and make sense of this world of impact investing. So with all of that as kind of a convoluted intro, ladies and gentlemen, Amy Minnick. Thanks for having me, Henry. And you know, I think the houseboat analogy is the wrong one. Do you remember in the 60s when basketball players used to go out on the basketball court, they'd take off their loafers and they'd put on Chuck Taylor tennis shoes that would lace up and they had basically cardboard in the bottom and then a little bit of cloth around the outside. Yeah. My stepfather played for Mizzou and that's what he played in. But now we have these fancy basketball shoes and we have running shoes and we have tennis shoes and we have shoes custom built for each kind of activity. It's no longer the case that we just have loafers or Chuck Taylors. I think impact investing and more importantly, the broader faith-driven investing movement, it's not a houseboat. It's helping people move from the place where they either have loafers or they have Chuck Taylors into a world where you have shoes specifically built for whatever it is that you're trying to do. Mm. So I want to get rid of the houseboat analogy because there's a better one out there. I'm going to call Warren and Mark uh, right after this. Yeah. Well, you know, Warren Buffett invested in, it's not New Balance, Brooks. So he should get the shoe analogy. I'll shoot him a tweet, see how it works out. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So Amy Minnick's on our show, of course. Who is Amy Minnick? Where do you come from? What's your story? How'd you get here? And how have you found yourself, as I have just acknowledged and highlighted you as, as an expert in the impact investing industry? How'd you get here? Well, I have three kids, been married for 15 years. I have little kids. They're seven, eight, and 11. I'm the youngest of five kids. My dad was an alcoholic. And by the time I came along, he couldn't keep a job. And so everybody in the family who was able to work went to work, including my mom, who was, by the time I was about seven, she was a single mom. She got a job, which was the only one available to her without a degree in the 1980s as a single working mom. She went to work for a company that we would today call a startup. Back then, it was just a struggling new business. But she's working for a startup and taking me to work with her. And so I grew up at the office with her, going on alarm calls at 2 a.m. I even had my own pillow and blanket at her office so that if she stayed late to work, I could go to bed there too. So I've been working in the family business since I was eight. And I caught the bug. I have been fascinated with the issues that an entrepreneur wrestles with for my whole life. When I was in law school, my mom actually took the company public. And so in a very short period of time, I've seen the full spectrum of family wealth. And there's so many stories I could tell, but this is the Faith Driven Investor podcast. So I will stick to just a few. What that transition in my family gave me was a great hunger for matters of generosity. So Chip Ingram wrote a book called The Genius of Generosity, and he talks about how generosity is a gateway to intimacy with God. But actually, financial generosity is kind of like the training wheels for the ultimate generosity. We are made in the image of Christ, and Christ gave his life. God gave his son. If we're made like that, then our stewardship of our finances is just the way in which we learn how to be generous, how to hold loosely everything that we have. And so with that hunger, that desire to figure out what does generosity mean for families, I went to work for the National Christian Foundation. 
where I got a front row seat to the work that God was doing in families as they were discovering what generosity meant for them. And I came to see that whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, greed ruins relationships. It destroys our hearts and it separates us from God. But generosity is this really cool tool where whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, it draws us closer to each other. It draws us closer to the Lord. And I have seen families who couldn't talk to each other without getting angry in the course of working together to make a grant or to solve a particular social issue that somebody was passionate about. It just opens things up. You know, it's not a panacea. It doesn't fix everything, but it opens things up so that people are able to get real with each other. And it's a pretty incredible thing. So in the course of helping families with generosity, we were asked to make a loan to a charity. And being the recovering lawyer that I am, I said, hey, that's not illegal. We can figure out how to do that. And it turns out it's in the tax code. Um, It's been there since the 60s, but we just hadn't been taking advantage of what the tax code allows us to do. And that million-dollar loan to this charity in Uganda to help buy handicrafts from women in Uganda, bring them to the States and sell them in Macy's and Walmart. In the course of investigating that loan, I saw a video where a woman from a remote village in Uganda is saying through an interpreter, she said, there's two things my people need, Jesus Christ and business, because business has the willpower to transform society. And all of a sudden, my whole background, the 30 plus years up to that point made sense. It was business, it was generosity, it was the thing that God had put in me coming together to say, oh, I want to be a part of putting money to work in businesses that are creating long-term solutions to our biggest problems for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. So that's how I got to Impact Investing. So that's a great story, and everybody has a story behind how they get to Impact Investing. And some of those stories haven't been written yet for our listeners And you are working now at the Impact Foundation to help those families write their own stories about how they have their first interaction at times with making an impact investment. So you talked about being the National Christian Foundation, talked about being an attorney, you talked about how you're able to make that loan in Uganda. What is the Impact Foundation? So in short, we're a simple way for people to use charitable capital to invest in an equity position in a business or make a loan to a charity. So we've been around since 2016. We've placed about 70 million in capital in about 200 companies. We're an LP in Sovereigns. We've made loans to a church in Uganda to help them buy new land. We've invested in manufacturing businesses in the Pacific Northwest, low-income housing in the South, retirement centers in Florida, and a lot of things in between. But essentially what we are is a way to help families do what it is that the Lord has called them to do with their charitable capital. So money that they've put in a private foundation or donor advised fund. Amy, this is William here. Take us one layer deeper there. So when you say invest charitable capital, my guess is some part of our listeners think, okay, I didn't quite follow that sentence. You mentioned donor advised, but maybe just take us a couple layers deeper. You know, when you say invest charitable capital, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? What pocket does that come out of? Just walk us through that real quick. Yeah, that's a great question. So let's take it from the perspective of a family that we actually serve. A guy named David had a company that he ran for 20 years. When he sold it, he was smart and he put some money aside in a donor advised fund. Got a great big tax deduction 
And the beauty of a donor advised fund is you get the deduction this year or the year that you need it. And then you can decide what charities you want to support over time. And so he goes about the work of granting to charities for a while, but realizes along the way that he read a book, Toxic Charity. He also read When Helping Hurts and he went to Haiti. And he realized- in the And he did something else though. I want to interject something because uh-huh. otherwise people might just go through it too quickly. He did something that so many different business owners don't do. Wealth is created in lots of different ways, but oftentimes in the faith-driven world is created by business owners selling their businesses. In an amazing amount of them, go ahead, sell their businesses, pay the capital gains tax, and then say, okay, how can I be generous? You're talking about somebody who did something, as you, in your words, I think you said it was smart. What did he do again? Before he sold, he wrestled with the question of how much is enough? How much is enough for my family? How much is enough for my retirement? How much is enough for my grandkids? And then he said, the rest of that we're going to give away. So he actually gave part of the company stock, the company that he built, he put it in a donor advised fund before the sale so that when the sale occurred, the new owner purchased not just from him, but also from his donor advised fund. He got a tax deduction. He avoided the capital gains tax on the portion that he'd gifted. And he had now a lot of money to give away. And so you're suggesting that not only could he then give that money away, but that he might also be able to invest it? That's right. So money that's been put in a private foundation or donor advised fund, it's all invested. Uh, There's about $900 billion that's been set aside for charity. And about 7 to 10% of that is given away each year. More than that at the National Christian Foundation, but that's the average across the country. So 7 to 10% is given away to charities. The rest, about $800 billion, it's invested, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and we think that's pretty normal. But impact investing says, what if we took that $800 billion that's invested and put a portion of that to work to make money and have an impact? Every company on the planet has an impact somehow. It has an impact on its employees, on its customers. It has an impact on the environment. What if we made sure that that impact was both positive and we were intentional about what we want to see change? So impact investing isn't doing anything different than what's being done with charity and charitable capital. It's not different in form, but it's different in the way that we think about what we want to have happen with it while it's generating a profit. So, Amy, what is not impact investing? Because it's a broad term and everybody's throwing it around now and going, oh, I'm an impact investor or I've got an impact investing fund. Um, In your definition, what is not? Well, the definition that we've been given is intentionally placing capital to achieve a measurable, beneficial social, environmental, and then we add spiritual gain. So if it's not intentional, if you're just, I have a friend who says sometimes wealthy people become collectors. They just put money in whatever business their next door neighbor and tennis buddy happened to start. If it's not intentional, it's not impact investing. If we're investing, but we haven't yet started to figure out how to measure the impact. It doesn't quite meet the definition of impact investing. If we're not thoughtful to consider the negative consequences of our investments, then it's probably not impact investing. But I'll admit, it's a tricky thing to figure out. It's easier to say what is than what isn't. Can we acknowledge that all of our investing makes an impact? Yes. If we, invest, we buy 500 shares of Procter & Gamble. That makes an impact. We're voting with our dollars. That may not create jobs in South Africa, but I think a paradigm that might be helpful for a lot of people is to understand that 
where we spend our money, what restaurant we go to, where we give to, where we invest, it all makes an impact. The question is, what kind of an impact does it make? Is it a strong or is it a muted impact? Or what does that look like? But I do like where you're going. Of course, it is important to have some sort of constraints around the definition for people to understand that there is a part of investing where, which is, I understood you said, has measurable societal, environmental, and one thing that you've added at Impact Foundation is spiritual, or did I mess up the first one? You got it. That's basically it. Got it. What so, I like is the intentionality. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. I go out and buy 500 shares of Procter & Gamble stock because I just read an analyst report that it's going to outperform over the next uh, six months, that's not impact investing. That's not intentionally saying, oh, I'm going to invest in Procter & Gamble because they're doing some kind of good environmental sustainability, you know. Although some of the guests we've had on and that we'll have on will say that actually that does make an impact. You're voting Procter & Gamble manufactures a product or a service that's harmful for society or harmful for the kingdom of God is not for human flourishing. You are making some sort of impact. You're validating what they're doing. They can go back to their shareholders and say, see, our stakeholders want us to pursue this product line. And, but at the same time, there's a difference there. Yeah. That's actually a good place to start. So when we started Impact Foundation, my husband and I had a lot of conversations about what we were doing. And our wrestling is who cares about our little bit of money? Like nobody's going to pay attention to our little bit of money. We're just retail investors with an IRA and some retirement accounts. But what we came to was for us, we didn't care if anybody at the company noticed that we sold out of Under Armour for whatever reason. But it mattered to our conscience because we knew what was happening and that there was something happening within the company that we didn't agree with, manufacturing conditions or whatever it might be. It was a matter of our obedience to sell out of that stock and buy something else. We're small enough that nobody's going to notice what we do. But for us, it was a matter of obedience. And that's often the place where impact investing starts. And then as people kind of walk down this path, they discover, well, gosh, there's a lot more that can be done besides just getting rid of positions that do things I don't care about. And could you take us into the, I love you added the spiritual section to what you guys are at the Impact Foundation, but where did this impact investing model start, right? You know, it sounds like it's about 15 years old. I feel like it's getting really popular. It's billion dollar funds now, but walk us through that from the beginning real fast. Well, first I would argue that it's older than 15 years old. Um, That's probably true. I sort of feel like there's examples of impact investing in scripture, the way that scripture commanded the Israelites to allow for the poor and foreigners to glean from the edges of the fields. I think that was an early model of impact investing, but setting aside that it's really not new, the way that we think of it today has been around uh, since about 2006. The term's been around since 2006. When large private foundations got together and said, we really want to make sure that we're using the corpus of our foundations to work not at cross purposes with what we're trying to do in the world through our grants, but actually to complement our granting efforts. And so in 2006, Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, Omidyar Network, and others said, all right, we need a phrase. We're going to call it impact investing. And they set about to figure out how to put more money into renewable energy, clean technology, those sorts of things. The faith-driven space has been a little bit slower to catch on, but there's actually three sort of trends that we're seeing. We're being pushed this direction by people who want to take the gospel into difficult places. They call it businesses missions, which in some parts of the country means 
losing money for Jesus. But true businesses missions is really helping an indigenous entrepreneur who wants to be faithful to sharing the gospel in word and deed, have a business that also gives them more of a platform. Because if you're offering people jobs, they're more willing to listen to the story about their spiritual savior. So that's one trend. Another one is people who are saying, you know, the last time I did a technology company, I just wanted to sell a bunch of software service. Now I want to do something that really contributes to human flourishing in an important way. So it's the folks from the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast who are looking for like-minded capital, and that's driving some impact investing as well. When we were both at the Praxis Conference a few weeks ago, I heard you on a panel talk about the importance of truth, mm. truth-telling and investing. And I think you described it in terms of impact washing and truth-telling or something like that. Share with our listeners, what do you mean by that? Why is it so important? That's a tough one. <laughs> the importance of truth-telling and impact washing they are related, but a little bit distinct. So in the area of truth-telling, I think if we're going to call ourselves faith-driven investors and impact investors, it can't just be about what we're doing with our money, but I think we have to be doing the discipline of investing differently. And there's a lot of investing traditionally that doesn't involve truth-telling. It involves, you know, we hear 500,000 pitches a year and the ones that we don't like, we just don't respond to. Or there's a lot of, gosh, that's a great idea. You should probably go do that. Whereas I think sometimes it might really be the healthiest, most loving thing to say, um, did you know there's 80 people that pitched the same idea to me last week? So you probably have the same thing, Henry. You hear the same thing from lots of people. And it's hard to decide how truthful to be. And so it's easier to just not say anything. So to the issue of truth-telling and impact washing, we want our metrics to look good. We want our companies to sound like they're doing something really great in the world. But the truth is, I think it's very difficult to track impact. I don't know that I've seen a whole lot of examples of it being really dialed in and perfect, especially in the early stages. Because in the early stages of a business, you just want to keep your doors open. And sometimes it's not always easy. We had a company admit to us that they were so busy trying to stay open that they were having people work overtime and not paying them. Not only were they not having the impact that they wanted to have, but they were probably having a negative impact. Yeah. And so there's an element of how truthful do you be with your investors when you got them into it because you said, hey, we're going to go to this developing world country and create a lot of jobs and the truth is, you're not doing what you hoped to be doing. So do you present an annual report or an investor summary that looks amazing? And how much truth do you share in that? And then as investors, how much do we push to help the company not tell us what we want to hear, but tell us what's actually happening? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get all of our companies to report on metrics, three metrics at least, non-financial metrics to determine whether they're doing the things in the world that they set out to do. And it would be a whole lot easier if all 200 of the companies picked the same three metrics, but that wouldn't be true to what the Lord put in them. And so we're trying to walk the balance between tell us what God's asking you to do and report on it in a way that's true to your calling. But also at some point, I really want to be able to roll up the metrics. And if 200 companies are giving me 600 different metrics, that's pretty impossible to roll up. 
Right. Are there external sources that you use to seek truth? There are. So we tend not to invest in anybody that we don't know. I love the sovereign's capital paradigm of calling people that they go to church with to find out about them. But the world of faith-driven impact investing, it's pretty small. There's not a lot of times where we're going to get a call from somebody out of the blue and we don't know them or know six people who know them. And so that tends to be a lot of external validation just in that sense. Uh, But when we vet a company, we're looking at not just what do they tell us, but what can we see about them through Facebook, their online presence, people who know them, those sorts of things. Yeah, I was one of the, uh, at the early days of Glassdoor, one of the founding board members. And we found that in the, not impact investing, but just broad asset investing, that Glassdoor became a place where people would try to figure out what's the company really doing with their human assets? What kind of culture do they have? And more than once did we have investors come back to us and say, thank you, you saved us. We were getting ready to invest in that company or, you know, we were getting ready to put them in our fund. But we went and we looked at all what's really going on on Glassdoor. And we found out that's toxic culture. And we don't want to invest in a toxic culture. So um, I think there are, are ways that we could find truth out there. And you mentioned that, Amy, as an interesting illustration about the fact of a company asking people to work overtime and not paying them and how that might make a negative impact. I want you to build on that a little bit because I'm going to presume that in a space where some people are coming up with investment opportunities, especially when you're looking at difficult places like Uganda and some of the other places you mentioned, that things don't always go well especially when somebody's trying to have a gainful enterprise and make a product or a service that the market adopts and does well and also have that type of an impact along the economic or environment or spiritual side. So tell us a bit about when things don't go well and what you do as an investor. Now, clearly some of those things aren't going well because they're not speaking the truth, right? And that's probably the theme that you've picked up on. But what happens when things work out poorly? And I also want you to talk about some of the examples where you've seen things work out really well. But go to the negative side first. I think sometimes it's confusing in Christianity when things don't go well, especially if we feel like the Lord called us to a thing. Because if the Lord calls us to a thing and we serve a good God, it's supposed to work, right? Why wouldn't it work? And so... There's a sense of, did I hear him wrong? It'd be much easier to assume that we heard him wrong than that he didn't cause success to happen. So one of the first things we look at or we seek to remember is that, number one, God's measure of success is fundamentally different than ours in a lot of ways. And number two, his time frame is a lot longer than ours. And so what feels like a failure when we close a business or shut down a nonprofit may not look at all like that from God's perspective. The God of the universe who created everything we see in seven days or the metaphorical seven days, however you answer that question, that God who provided for a pathway for forgiveness from sin, for every sin, for every human, for all of time, through one guy in three days, he doesn't need my venture to succeed He doesn't need my investment to succeed. And so I think at the outset of recognizing a failure, it's critical to check our spirit and say, am I trying to push this to make it successful 
because I feel like that's what the Lord's asking me to do or because I want to feel better about myself or satisfy some internal motivation that isn't from the Lord. So you get at something that I think is super important, which is the heart of the investor and the process by which you made the investment. So I think what you're getting at here a bit is that if we go through a process through prayer, maybe fasting through the counsel of others, spending time in God's word, and we feel driven to make an investment someplace, that it's not necessarily a complete failure when things don't work out. So let me look at it from the other way. Is it a failure if you don't spend time treating the asset that you've been entrusted to steward seriously, you don't pray about it, you don't endeavor to seek God's will, you make an investment, it goes up by 200 basis points higher than the market. Is that actually a failed investment? The wonderful thing about the Lord that we serve is that he has mercy for all things and he brings good out of everything. But when I look at scripture, it looks like the only thing to fear or the only risk for a follower of Jesus is disobedience. That's the only risky choice is to not seek to hear the Lord and not follow his voice. Everything else he promises to take care of. And we know he's good and we know he's sovereign and we know eternity is coming. So I don't know how to assess failure because he's also really good and very forgiving. But gosh, I wouldn't want to be in the place where I had the option to listen to him and I didn't choose to. Yeah, that's a good word. It does make the question like with the parable of the servants. What we don't know is what they did with the money. Mm -hmm. How they invested. Yeah, how they invested. There was no uh, direction or you should do it this way. You should do it that way. It was that they did something and we don't know that they stopped and prayed about it or did any of those things. The only thing we know is what they didn't invest in. It wasn't in internet stock. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Well, even the guy that was the wicked servant in that case, the guy who was given one and put it in the ground, I was just spending time in that passage of scripture earlier this week. And the response from the master was, hey, if you really knew that I was all that you said I was, he basically says, why didn't you at least put it on deposit at a bank so I'd get a tiny bit of interest? You just held on to it. And what I heard in that response to that servant was something along the lines of, I don't think you believe what you said about me. Because if you had believed what you said about me, then you would have done something with it. I think you were so, it wasn't that they tried and failed. It was that that guy didn't even try. He just took the talent and he put it in a drawer and he was like, man, whatever, that guy's probably not even coming back. He doesn't care about my talent. He didn't even stop to think what the master would expect when he came back. That was the real failure in that parable in the way that I read it. That's good. Could you walk us through as we get a little towards the end of our time, maybe take us down to what does an impact investment look like through the Impact Foundation? Maybe just walk us through one deal, one transaction, and let our listeners hear what they could do with their charitable capital. I wish you hadn't said I have to give one example. Because there's so many ways it can look. Oh, yeah. Because I also wanted to hear what are some investments that have done really well, where you look yeah. at it and say, gosh, that was really cool. The person who came to us had thought this out. They'd prayed about it. They wanted to make an impact. This is the investment. And actually, there's a good ending to the story. So yeah. talk us through how they walked through them about how they use charitable capital, how they deployed it, and maybe how that investment's going. Yeah. So a couple of my favorites. One is a company that almost failed, that is 
an amazing story of how to stick it out and watch the Lord turn something around. There was a company that had a shareholder disagreement and just about sank. They were running out of cash. They needed to raise money, but they couldn't because two shareholders were arguing with each other. And so they walked out the biblical way to get through a disagreement. They flew from the Philippines to Alaska, sat down with each other, got another intermediary and just talked it out. And each party lost something, but gained something. There wasn't a way in which everybody could get exactly what they wanted, but they got what they needed and were able to move forward. Company raised some more money and it's doing great. They were able to launch a new line of business where they employ formerly trafficked youth who have grown into adulthood to do some photo processing online. So I love that investment. That's a market rate risk-adjusted return potential. There are some that are below market investments, one in Nicaragua. And, you know, we're hoping to make a 4% rate of return in Guatemala. What is this company doing? Help us. You probably maybe can't mention the name, but tell us more about what they do. So I said Guatemala, it's Nicaragua. So they franchise fresh food stores. If you've been to much of the developing world, especially in Central America, everybody has access to a Coca-Cola and like one type of plant that everybody grows. In this region, it's yuca. Everybody grows yuca and you can walk to the corner market and buy a Coca-Cola or some Frito chips. But if you want to get fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, you have to be able to get on a bus, travel for three hours into the city buy your groceries and carry them home again. So there's just a real lack of access. Likewise, if a woman wants a job, she needs to travel the same three hours there, three hours back, leave her kids at home. So she's gone 15 hours a day just to work a normal day. So this company makes it easy for these women to open up a small franchise fresh food store in their home and they're selling fresh food to their neighbors. So A woman who used to travel six hours a day to work 10 hours and come home now can work from home, make more money than she was making, be there to raise her kids, and also sell fresh fruit and vegetables to her neighbors. That's a phenomenal investment, making a great impact, a little bit of return, but not risk-adjusted market rate. There's a company out of Seattle that's getting a group of investors together to buy controlling interests in middle market companies where the owner is aging out and needs to sell. And these are typically owners who've done a great job of building values into their company. And there's nothing inherently great about the widgets that these companies are making, but the way that they treat employees and vendors is redemptive. And so this group of investors gets together and they'll buy a controlling stake and then they'll work with the exiting owner to say, tell us what you're doing in your company that you think is really great for employees Tell us what you're doing in your company that you wish could be better. And then they'll sit down with employees and say, what is it that you really need? One of the simplest things this group did was they listened to the employees and the employees said that we can't eat lunch on site. And when we go out to our car, it's Seattle, it's muddy, the parking lot is unpaved and they get muddy and dirty and they can't eat lunch on site and it takes away from their workday. They end up not being able to eat. So they said, well, that's easy. Let's just pave the parking lot and provide a lunchroom. Simple things like that on the way to making above market returns, that's impact investing too. So lots of things in between as well. Amy, as we do close, we always like to ask and bring 
our listeners into your journey. You talked a little bit about the parable of talents that you were reading that, but maybe some other part, or you feel free to go deeper on what you're learning from the parable of talents, but where does God have you in your journey? I mean, you've been at this a long time. And so this could be about the impact foundation or about you personally, just maybe some piece of God's word that's coming alive to you in in new ways in this season that he has you in. If you wouldn't mind sharing with us where he's taking you. I have three little kids. They're seven, eight, and 11. Amen. And I'm running a startup. So where does the Lord have me? Sometimes it's like six minutes in my closet before everybody wakes up. But I get the lectionary every day on my phone. And the lectionary provides a way to read through scripture in three-year cycles. And so I'm just trying to hear from the Lord in the everyday as well. Anchored in scripture, but trying to listen to what he's doing and saying in the busyness of my everyday life. So it was the parable of the talents. I'm still wrestling through that. I also am rereading Andrew Murray's Humility, which if you've not read, it's a super short book, but it's extremely powerful. And he essentially says, the only way to truly be humble is to focus so much on the Lord that you don't see yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like myself. I like to think about myself. I think about my own problems. I think about the things I'm good at a lot. And so I'm trying to practice the discipline of regularly coming back to worship. The only antidote to pride is worship of the Lord. And so just trying to be really mindful throughout the day to notice what the Lord is doing and worship him for who he is, not just what I can see in my circumstances. So there you go. That's amazing. Thank you for taking us through that. It's funny how the Lord resurfaces books and certain times. I I don't know. I feel like I've had five people tell me to read Humility by Andrew Murray in the last month. What do you think I'm trying to tell you? Yeah. Come on, Warrior. So so I don't know if this is personally (laughs) for me or if everyone's hearing this, uh, but I will will download the book. I'm I'm, I'm done. You know, it's, uh, yeah. You could even buy it. There used to be something called paper um, that would come out and bound together, like glued together. And you can like write in the margins too. So if you wanted, I could send you something from... Not scalable. Not scalable. (laughs) (laughs) Greenberg would disagree. I'm in. I'm in. Awesome being with you. Thank you very much for your time. Grateful for your leadership in the space and being out there. And you're an entrepreneur. You're innovating. You're seeing an opportunity to help people invest their philanthropic capital. And that's really unique, it's innovative, and it puts you right smack dab in the middle of some really cool entrepreneurial stories going on around the world through some really neat impact investments. We look forward to having you back on the program. Grateful for your time and sharing what God's doing through your life. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We're very, very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven investor community. Hey, the best way for you to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. And while you're there, we of course want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people join the discussion now from all around the world. But it's also very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and one that you'll share with others. This podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends. Executive producer, Justin Foreman. Program director, Johnny Wills. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. 
and audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco.